Well, here we go. I've been kicking around this podcast idea for a while because it never felt like there were enough film-related shows out there. Not enough armchair critics, people that dive deep into overanalyzing movies and sharing their opinions. I bet you feel the same way. I bet you sit back on a regular basis and think, gee, you know what the internet needs? Opinions. My wife has a podcast and a streaming show, one about roller derby, one about people in the derby community that make art. Sometimes they make an appearance on one of those. Sometimes she reviews movies that have roller derby as part of the narrative or scene dressing. Those are obviously few and far between, and honestly, I'm not even sure many of them have made it to upload because I tend to get off track. If you're listening, dear, that's a good name. I like talking flicks, but not much of a conversationalist unless there's a good clip and back and forth to it, which is harder to come by these days, too. So, see, here I'm now by myself, uh, uh, talking to myself. It stands to reason this is something I probably could have and should have started years ago when the COVID thing started up. Not after sitting on my butt for months and waiting until my son returns to school via remote learning, but hey, punishment is a motivator. So here's how this works. I like to give movies a fair shake regardless of quality. The first viewing is typically absorption. Is it fun? Is it worth time, money? Then I'll give it another go after some breathing room. Does the narrative work? Do the characters work within said narrative? And finally, I'll study the technical craft. More broadly, the why, the how, the what. I'll think of a better way to phrase that as this continues, but in the meantime, this is real hat trick. R-E-E-L, because I'm clever as f***. I think figuring out which movie to start with took longer than finding an approach I'm comfortable with. It's tempting to come out of the gate with something new or classic or something so big the process of tackling it would give me a migraine. And starting off with Star Wars would be like gifting puppies to an orphanage by punting them through a closed window. It's not fun for anybody and there's no way to come out of that smelling good. Not right now anyway. Oh, I finally settled on something underseen, underappreciated, and a personal favorite. The 2013 John Curran film, Tracks. Dear Sir, I am planning to walk across the Australian desert from Alice Springs to the Indian Ocean, a distance of 2,000 miles. When people ask me why I'm doing it, my usual answer is why not. Your plan is ridiculous. Why don't you just shorten the trip? Tully and I will come with you. I just want to be by myself. You must be mad, girly. You know, that's about 2,000 miles. Six months of hard walking. You want to die out there or something? Now, the backstory to this is an admission of bias. Tracks is adapted from a book of the same name by Robin Davidson, recounting her solo journey across the Australian desert in 1977. It's a book I'd read many times growing up, and she's a person I've always admired a great deal. Sections of her journey were chronicled at the time by National Geographic through Rick Smolin. 
that issue was in the Leaning Tower collection of Nat Geo books in my house, along with a few of Smolin's coffee table photo books, like A Day in the Life of America. It was the whole Day in Life series. And I'm pretty sure just about anybody else who was around in the 80s and early 90s, and I'm sure before, whether it was your house or your grandparents' house, you know what I mean when I say the Leaning Tower of Nat Geo's. They popped up like tribbles. So photography is my trade and Smolin has always been on my personal Mount Rushmore. I've always looked up to him. So this flick for me is like a planetary alignment, not the actual kind of alignment in reality where they just kind of look like they're close together when you're looking up and nothing happens, but the movie kind where once the planets align, it's a very clear straight line and some kind of cosmic laser event happens and things explode or whatever. I was perhaps the only person drooling in anticipation for this when it was announced, or at least the only person in the States. It could have been terrible and I would have loved it because it actually existed, but it wasn't terrible. It was pretty magnificent, and I think the fact it's a little-known moment of history in areas outside of Australia is what leads it to being really underappreciated. The plot is a real simple pitch. A young woman decides to escape for a while and experience something she's always seen as beautiful up close, the desert. She travels to the remote town of Alice Springs and learns to train, ride, and care for camels before making her way west to the Indian Ocean. To help fund the trip, she aligns with National, Ge uh, National Geographic, excuse me, and at first tolerates, then welcomes Rick Smolin's occasional presence uh, to document the journey. The saccharine punch is, of course, she learns more about herself, others, and nature as the adventure progresses. That last bit is a point of contention I've seen in some reviews. Some feel it's dramatized for the sake of dramatization. It's a low-hanging bit of fruit that's seen as the defining trope of wanderlust pictures. And that's true. It's kind of a trope, but it exists for a reason, right? A good story utilizes that point. It doesn't lean into it for lack of creativity. The simple fact is if you travel and experience something new, that's what happens. You learn and your perspective broadens. Um, that's the point of travel, right? And Trax really sells it without smacking you over the head. Uh, her revelations aren't bolts of lightning in the dark. They're gradual at a pace that runs pretty parallel with its audience. It's fun and beautiful and worth checking out for sure. So since I've read the source material countless times, watched the movie far more than thrice, how's that story play out and compare, you ask? Or maybe not. You're probably not asking anything you're aware of the format, you know what's coming up. Uh, I'm sure you're just sitting there patiently waiting for something else to pop up in your feed. Uh, and who cares about the camel lady? That sounds boring. No, it's cool. It's cool. I see you. I'll give you a nepotistic ad break from my wife. Hi, my name is Dee Relia, and I'm the wife mentioned in this podcast. Have you ever wondered about roller derby? Enjoy roller derby or might be asking yourself, what the hell is roller derby? Well, look no further. Head on over to Derby from the Balcony. It's a podcast about more than left turns. Because in roller derby, we skate left. 
given the movie's adapted from a memoir, I don't have to stress that there are things excluded. Memoirs are built on internal thought, and while the movie has its fair share of narration, they do a solid job of showing, not telling, enough of the book that it's pretty thorough one-to-one translation. There are four elements that make this one of my favorite films. Two of them I'll get to later, but first up are the leads, Robin and Rick, played by Mia Wasikowska and Adam Driver, respectively. Mia embodies Robin on every level in a true born-to-play piece of casting and carries more weight on her shoulders than she's given credit for, man. She turned in such a thoughtful, real performance, she made it easy to ignore that saccharine punch I mentioned earlier. She draws you in from her first moments and keeps you right there with her through the end. Meanwhile, the worst that can be said about Adam Driver is he's a head taller than the real Rick Smolin. Uh, but the rest is 100% spot on. I don't get that guy. I need to praise Rant for a moment. Every single role that guy takes, when you see him hit the screen, you go, oh, that's Adam Driver. How's he so different, though? Because he acts, stupid. Nah, you know what I mean. I know he acts his ass off, but look at him. You can point to any of the great actors and how they can be so different between roles, but it's always aided by makeup or a ton of body swains. Dustin Hoffman between Tootsie, Hook, Dick Tracy, all fantastic, but easy to see how it disappeared into each role, especially with the help of that makeup. Christian Bale and all of the things he's done, he's going to regret all of that in the future, by the way. I mean, Tom Hanks did it, and he got diabetes because of all that weight fluctuation. But even when he disappears into roles, it's still Christian Bale. Oh, there's Bale being awesome as a skeleton with skin. Oh, there's Bale being awesome as a fat vice president that shoots friends in the face. Oh, there's Bale really digging Huey Lewis. But Driver doesn't change his appearance, and he just dissolves. A good case in point is Rise of Skywalker. Look at a side-by-side of him as Kylo Ren and as Ben Solo in the same damn movie. That man had one line of dialogue as Ben Solo. And he sold it as being two totally different personalities. How? How is that giant man so damn talented? It's crazy. Jesus, it should be illegal. So I'm, where I'm heading with that is he is Rick Smolin. He's awkwardly excited and easily distracted away from the world by being hyper-focused on his job. He's so believable and so smooth in the part, you barely notice he had an arc until the end when suddenly he's this different guy altogether. The awkward, spazzy freneticism cooled into casual confidence. The supporting cast, when present, navigate the world and people they interpret with super ease and grace. There wasn't a single part that felt out of place or phoned in, and they all aid a cohesive narrative that itself maintains an efficient pace. Nothing lingers too long. Nothing's over too soon. Each bit is masterfully given the exact length of time it needs. Hey, that's a segue. I might be okay at this. The technical stuff is my favorite part. I'm going to use sexy words like cinematography, editing, score, lighting. And then in this flick, it's all pretty damn sexy. The other two of four elements I can't gush enough over are the score and cinematography. And gush I shall. That's getting inappropriate. Mandy Walker quickly became one of my favorite DPs because of this film. I admit I haven't seen all of her work because her earlier credits are harder to come by in the States and other titles I haven't seen in a long time, but I might revisit for this podcast if I keep it up. Stuff like Shattered Glass, Boz Lerman's Australia, and Jane Got a Gun. 
Uh, she recently shot Mulan, which is coming out, I feel like any day, um, and Hidden Figures. And it's currently on Boz Lerman's latest one, Elvis. I'm assuming that's about Elvis. She makes solid professional compositions, and it's all free of like pomp and tired shortcuts. She's pragmatic, and I respect that. Simplicity is refreshing, and it's clear she's confident in her craft. The production put in great effort to match Smolin's photography, even bringing him in on location to consult and work as set photographer, which, you know, is pretty damn cool. I'm sure the landscape had a heavy hand in her success, wide open vistas and comparable natural light. She had the home field advantage, but there's something magical to shooting in a way that looks casual. You're not watching through a lens. You're present in the story. Now, I got to walk back part of an earlier statement. When I said the pacing was perfect, that's mostly true. There's one moment in the whole runtime I find unnecessary. Early in the film, just after Robin meets Rick for the first time, when her friends bring him along to visit her out in an abandoned ranch she's squatting in during her prep phase, excuse me, the scene awkwardly shifts to this small house party at night, implying everyone's getting lit but her. The intention's pretty clear. It's met as an example of her reasoning for the solo trip. She's bored and irritated by the trappings of society in her era, but it's discordant with the rest of the film. It's unnecessary plot padding. It's shot in a manner that matches nothing else aesthetically, and whether intended or not, serves only to kind of jiggle the viewer a bit and take him out of it for a moment or two. And that's really the only thorn in the editing. The rest is seamless, and Ty's Walker shots beautifully to Garth Stevenson's absolutely transcendent score. And I hate using the word uh, transcendent, but it, it fits in this case. Stevenson, I don't know where he came from. I don't know where he's gone. His credits are scant and made up of stuff I haven't seen. Uh, his biggest movie to date may well be uh, Chappaquiddick, and I haven't seen that. Uh, you can find some of his music at places like Spotify and Amazon Music, and it's really lovely, but nothing close to his work on tracks. In a medium with so much talent to name, or John Williams, Hans Zimmer, Danny Elfman, John Barry, uh, this guy's criminally underused. Uh, and it almost feels weird to admit such an out-of-nowhere selection stands as one of my all-time favorite film scores. It's unassuming and almost placeholder generic, but it fits the movie so well and every track is repeatable. I admit as much as I adore John Williams, there are very, very few scores he's done I can just put on and listen to all the way through. And none of his scores play freely from the film. It's more about having the mood for specific pieces. That's not a knock. I'd be mad to knock John Williams. It's just a different experience from a different style of composing. What he does works for him, and it's why he's the, the name. The score to tracks, however, is like variations of the binary sunset from the first Star Wars movie. It fits any mood, any point in time, or any stage of life, I, I feel like. I listen to it on its own nearly every day when writing, driving, relaxing. If I'm sad, it boosts me up. If I'm amped, it calms me down. 
I don't even feel like I have the proper vocabulary to do it justice. It's its own breathing entity and subtly reminds you of the movie without taking over your mental visuals. You can listen to Jurassic Park and you play the movie in your head. You know HQ. Stevenson has the chops to be up there with Vangelis to me. Uh, Vangelis is the only other composer whose work I can listen to ad infinitum. Uh, free from the films those scores are from. I'm not taken back to the movie. I'm transported to the world of the movie, to the feeling and atmosphere of it. I can tell no one's seen tracks or listened to its score because that music would have been repurposed all to hell all over movie trailers for the past few years. It's so unnoticed, it's difficult to find on streaming service. Uh, you can't type track soundtrack, or at least I haven't lucked out. Maybe my fingers are broken. Uh, you have to type Garth Stevenson and look through his albums. If you don't check out the movie, I recommend the soundtrack on its own just the same. Though I obviously highly recommend the movie and the book and the subsequent photo book Rick Smolin assembled called Inside Tracks, where the first half focuses on his photos of Robin's trip with personal insights and the back half focuses on the development and production of the film. As of this recording, you can find tracks on Amazon Prime. It's currently on YouTube for free with ads and on Netflix in certain regions outside the U.S. I'm not sure which one specifically, but definitely not in the U.S. right now. I'm probably going to watch it again after wrapping this up. You know how when you were a kid and stayed home sick from school and burritoed yourself up in blankets and watched cartoons and The Price is Right or whatever the equivalent was for your generation or country? It's kind of like that, I feel. A warm blanket when you're feeling kind of shitty or a fun diversion when you're feeling perfectly fine and just need to duck away and escape. So that's the first of hopefully a few more. I will ideally get better at this. But thanks for checking this out anyway. And I'm going to try to tack links in the description to trailers for the movies I talk to myself about. Maybe even bonus material I come across. I don't know. We'll see. Along with all the relevant social stuff, if you'd like to tell me I'm wrong or have a movie you think I should cover, stay safe, be smart, have fun, at least have fun.